Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called Learning from Domestic Homicides with Dr. Peter Jaffe. Dr. Peter Jaffe is one of Canada's leading researchers on domestic homicides. He's a psychologist, and he's also the co-founder of the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee. In this episode, Peter explains how domestic homicides are reviewed and what we can learn from these tragedies. I learned so much from this episode. I know it can be difficult to talk about and to hear about domestic violence deaths, but I think it's so important to understand how and why they occurred so that we can prevent them from happening in the future. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank our episode sponsor, 570 News, local reporters and local journalists keeping you connected to your community 24-7 with the latest breaking news from where you live. Stay up to date with everything happening in your ever-changing universe with 570 News, Kitchener's local source for news, sports, and talk. Hi, Peter. Hi. I'm wondering if you could just start by sharing a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a psychologist and professor at Western University in the Faculty of Education and also academic director for the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children. Um, I've been working in the field uh, almost 50 years. Um, So I started my work in the area of domestic violence working with the London Police Service. We had a crisis service. We had uh, uh, five civilians working around the clock in an unmarked uh, police car helping to respond to domestic violence calls. The police went first and then uh, we were called in to support uh, victims and perpetrators and children living with domestic violence. So I I got in this area many years ago and, and I can't get out because it's an area that sort of grabs a hold of you because you see all the problems and you're looking for solutions and the longer you're at this the more you realize how complex the solutions are, that there's there's no quick fix, but there are things we can do to improve the situation. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like you've had a really interesting career, 50 years of it, wow. Well, it uh, turns my hair gray, but it, it also uh, makes you think about all the things that you do. It's like, it's like looking at, uh, when you start, you think there's gonna be more straightforward solutions, and then you realize that, in the area of domestic violence, uh, not only are there no easy answers, but you can't do anything by yourself. Everything in this field requires a great deal of collaboration. It's uh, community agencies working with the courts. It's uh, neighbors, friends, and family getting involved and engaged, um, much as with your program where you want to get everybody thinking about how they can be a, a good neighbor and provide support both for victims and children 
and also uh, how to reach out to perpetrators to prevent the violence from continuing. Oh yeah, I think I totally get that. I think it's such a complex issue that I think on the surface when sometimes people see it from the outside it doesn't seem as complex as it as it really is and there's so much going on there and um, I'm really excited to learn from you today because I know you're quite an expert in it so I'm really looking forward to hearing from you so thank you again for being here. My pleasure. So kind of to begin, I thought maybe we could start with some of the basics. Maybe you could just start by telling us what domestic homicide is, just explaining that. Domestic homicide refers to any death that uh, happens in the context of an intimate relationship. So obviously most people understand that domestic homicide, you know, may be a, a couple who are in an intimate relationship, um, actually across Ontario. Um, about three in ten of the domestic homicides are in fact murder-suicides where perpetrator kills the victim and then himself. What a lot of people don't understand about domestic homicides is that they also include people who are killed in the context of that domestic violence. So for example, there may be children who are killed. Um, about 10% of domestic homicides in Ontario also involve children who are uh, who are killed. There may be third parties, there may be uh, extended family who are killed, and it may be third parties who intervene. In Ontario, we've had cases of police officers killed in the context of responding to domestic violence cases, so any death related to uh, domestic violence. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. I do think that's really important to kind of get clear on from the beginning, because um, it is such a broad it's a bit more broad than I think some people might think it is. So I think it's important to get clear on that. So can you also expand on about how many domestic homicides uh, occur in Canada every year? I'm not sure if you have the numbers there. Well, we're just uh, completing a major national study um, together with my colleague Myrna Dawson, criminologist at the University of Guelph. Uh, we've reviewed files working both with coroners and medical examiners in every province and territory, well, most provinces and territories, and also looking at court decisions and and media reports. Um, we found that over the last 10 years, there's approximately 82 cases a year of domestic homicide uh, in Canada. So the, the 82 referred specifically to victims, obviously, if you look at the suicides, then obviously uh, the number goes up. In general, every domestic homicide uh, involves um, may involve some uh, other victims, either the perpetrator's suicide or uh, third parties who were killed at the scene. And so something else I kind of want to talk about today is the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee, uh, the DVDRC. I know you are on the committee, and I'm really interested to learn a bit more about it. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the DVDRC is and how it works. Um, the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee uh, works through the office of the chief coroner. So the committee reports to the chief coroner, and the committee in Ontario has been around since uh, 2003. Um, it was a, it's a committee uh, made up of uh, multiple uh, professionals working in different sectors. For example, in our committee, we have uh, victim services, we have uh, crown attorneys, police officers, uh, researchers, uh, social workers, psychologists, 
uh, also have over the years have survivors uh, we've had uh, individuals who have lost someone to uh, domestic homicide so the the committee reviews material that's gathered by the coroner so in Ontario under the coroner's act the police are able to access any information that relates to the victim of the homicide. So the police gather information from, for example, uh, Children's Aid Society, family doctors, mental health professionals, social, social services agencies that have been involved. Uh, also interviews with friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, and that all that information is pulled together. And then we have our multidisciplinary review and then there's a report written that summarizes uh, what happened and most importantly uh, how it could be could have been prevented probably better way to word that is how could a similar death in those similar circumstances in the future be be prevented so most cases have multiple recommendations about what we can do to enhance our community and agency response to domestic violence. Thank you for explaining that a bit more. And I know you said it's been it started in 2003. I'm wondering, have you been on the committee the entire time then? Yes, I was one of the founders. Actually, Myrna Dawson and I um, worked actually the year before getting things organized because there are um, death review committees across the US and there's also uh, death review committees in Australia and New Zealand. So before we began, there was a lot of uh, work done to look at, for example, uh, look at risk factors that are associated with lethal violence or repeat violence. So we helped develop uh, the initial risk factor form, which is coded for every case that's reviewed, looking at what, what were the warning signs prior to the uh, prior to the homicide, so I've been there since the since the beginning, and uh, and uh, probably been involved now in reviewing over 500 homicides, either directly or as a part of the part of the team. Oh wow, that's so many! Well, in Ontario, there's uh, average number of since we began the average number of uh, domestic homicides just in this province. There's about 25 cases on average involving uh, an average of 33 deaths. So there's uh, lots of information available. And I should mention that all the reports of the Death Review Committee are available online. If you go online to the office of the Chief Coroner and you just type in uh, Annual Report Death Review Committee, you can uh, find all the, the reports there. Great, thank you. And I know you, something you said at the very beginning when we started talking was this is a field that once you get into, you just keep looking for answers. I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate a little bit more on that. I'm curious what more you had to say there. Well, I think one it, one issue is even the concept of domestic homicide. We When we think of domestic homicide, you know, we probably picture a couple uh, in trouble and distress where there's a history of domestic violence. I think what's important to know is that is that they're all unique. That there's uh, they're, they're just not one average case. Uh, for example, you have couples that are elderly, uh, couples that have been together for 50 years, uh, where one or both of them are suffering physical or mental health difficulties, and there's a murder suicide, often with 
not many warning signs. At the other end of the age spectrum, you have couples and dating relationships uh, where there's um, ongoing violence and a, and there's a homicide. So just, just looking at the f one variable of age, there's a lot of differences between the youngest couples we see who are actually most at risk because most domestic violence, um, the high risk group is are young people, 15 to 24. At the other uh, end, couples 65 years of age and older, um, there's a lower incidence of domestic violence and domestic homicide, uh, but there's still unique warning signs related to physical and mental health and isolation and lack of support uh, from friends and family and and potentially the healthcare system. So, so I, I think what one of the themes as an example is it's is the complexity. Uh, you also across Ontario, there's also differences between rural and urban communities. Um, so, what most people wouldn't know is that there's actually a higher use of uh, of weapons in rural communities because because rifles are a normal part of uh, rural communities and hunting, that in fact, uh, domestic homicides related to guns is much higher per capita in rural communities than urban communities. But in the average person's mind, when we think about guns, we think about cities and gangs, uh, which may be a, a fair stereotype, but when it comes to domestic violence, rural women are most in danger uh, from weapons in rural communities. We also, uh, just the complexity also, other aspects of the population. We also work with cases that involve immigrant refugees into the country. So we see individuals who have significant barriers in reaching out for help because of language and cultural issues. We also review a number of cases involving indigenous, indigenous uh, people. Uh, and obviously there's a whole challenge there in terms of uh, history of colonization in Canada and oppression and residential schools, distrust of authority. So you see unique factors in terms of not only the living conditions and the extent to which Indigenous people are vulnerable or marginalized, but also their hesitancy to reach out to the police or reach out to social service agencies like the Children's Aid because of historical mistreatment and distrust of those systems. So those are just some examples when you think of domestic homicide, you have to imagine a whole range of cases with many different factors. And we, we often say context is everything, that in understanding a case, you have to understand the individual's background and the context of their, their lives and the, the many factors that may make them vulnerable or make create barriers in terms of reaching out for help yeah, it's amazing all the different risk factors there are, and I'm sure you've seen such an array working on this review committee for all these years. Um, I'm also curious with the most current uh, recent report that came out, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about it and talk about what some of the top risk factors were that came out of that report. The, the major risk factors are uh, prior history of domestic violence, uh, separation, actual or pending, so either the couple is recently separated or she has indicated that she's leaving and she's contacted a, a lawyer and she has plans, so even a pending separation can be dangerous. Um, 
depression in the perpetrator. So perpetrators who are depressed uh, feel they have, you know, they're losing everything and they may be more desperate. Controlling behavior on the part of the perpetrator, isolation on the part of the victim, uh, the victim's intuitive sense of fear, stalking uh, by the perpetrator, prior strangulation or threats to kill, alcohol or drug abuse. So those are some of the major risk factors. Actually, overall, if uh, your listeners go to the Death Review Committee report in the appendix, there's a list of all 41 factors that we look at, uh, which are important, and you can consider them part of significant factors that we need to raise public awareness on. Okay, great. Yeah, and we'll make sure on our website, so if you go to sheisyourneighbor.com, we'll make sure to link this in the episode resources too, so it's really easy for everybody to see that. I'm also wondering, do you think any of these, like when you're looking at these risk factors, have any of them ever been surprising to you, or do you think they might be surprising to somebody else who's looking in? I think uh, most people look at look at them and I think it would make uh, sense for the, for the most part. I think what's what's surprising is how many risk factors there are prior to the homicide. I think that's that's surprising. If you if you stop the average person on the street just to have a general conversation about domestic homicide, they would think, well, bad things happen. You can't do anything to prevent it. If somebody wants to kill somebody else, they're going to kill them, and you know there, there's nothing we can do. Actually, the opposite is the case that. Um, about 70% of the cases have seven or more risk factors. Often these risk factors are known to community agencies. They're known to friends, family, uh, co-workers, and they tend to accumulate over time. So most deaths with hindsight appear predictable and preventable. So it's not a question of that one day somebody gets up and decides to kill somebody else. There's usually multiple warning signs and usually a, a history that's known to the community in, in multiple ways. I think that's what's most surprising. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's, it's really sh- kind of shocking when you say it, that they are so preventable. But I think in a way to me, it also is a little bit empowering because I, I feel like, okay, there is something that we can do. This is worth having a conversation about. This is worth looking into and you know, knowing that we all can have a role in this and there's some part everybody can play, I, I feel like that is a bit empowering. It is. I, I think one shouldn't give up hope. Um, I mean, clearly, we're not going to be able to prevent every domestic homicide, uh, but the reality is we can certainly reduce the numbers and also get help earlier for for victims and perpetrators. And again, I when I talk about victims and perpetrators, obviously you need we need, you know, really good services, uh, coordinated services responding to victims of domestic violence. But we also need to have good services that reach out to men uh, who are abusive. And and again, as we talk about this, I realize for your listeners, they're, they're probably thinking, well, what? How come he keeps saying she and he? Well, in Ontario. Um, the vast majority of the victims are women who are killed by male intimate partners, uh, usually after separation or after a long history of domestic violence. And in these domestic homicides in Ontario, 80% are women killed by men. Uh, About 10% are men killed by women. And other 10% are children uh, 
killed by their parents. And with domestic violence, it's quite often children killed by a father as an act of revenge for the mother leaving the relationship. Uh, so, so obviously, um, one victim is one too many. You know, we're not condoning men being abused in any way. But if you look at the major problems, this is not a gender-neutral topic. We're, we're looking at women who live in fear and are often seeking support uh, to deal with dangerous relationships. Thanks. I appreciate you elaborating on that a bit more because I think that's important to understand. And that does have something to do with why we call this project She Is Your Neighbor because I think it's important to recognize the gendered violence as well and how that really does play a role. So I, I really appreciate you expanding on that. I was also wondering if you could expand a bit more on the risk factors, how these are used. So I know you use these risk factors, you make the list, um, and then you're able to make recommendations for effective intervention and prevention strategies. Could you talk a little bit more about who you connect with and who uses these risk factors? Not enough people use these risk factors, so there's still a lack of awareness about how dangerous domestic violence is. I'd say that uh, these risk factors come together for some professionals who actually have risk assessment forms uh, that they use as part of their intervention. Now, the, the only professionals in Ontario who have to use some sort of structured risk assessment tool are the police. So OPP or Regional Police Services by police standards have to use uh, risk assessment. So they complete uh, a thorough list of risk factors um, after a domestic violence occurrence and certainly after someone is charged and that information goes on to the Crown Attorney and that might be relevant for the court in terms of whether somebody gets released on bail or what conditions you know under which they're released in terms of staying away from the victim and the home and the and her workplace so the police are consistent uh, probation officers across Ontario have uh, risk assessment tools that they use. And other professionals, it's really a hit and miss basis. Um, obviously, uh, if you work in a shelter for abuse victims, you'll have some sort of risk assessment tool you use. Or if you're running a, a batter intervention program, uh, you'll have some screening at the point of intake. But generally speaking, the number one problem in Ontario related to risk assessment is not enough people are doing it that it, it, it's, it can't just be working on a hunch or working based on your past experience. Uh, very, there's a number of tools and checklists that have to be used in a very structured way. And not only do they have to be used in a structured way, but when the assessment is done, it has to lead to some sort of safety planning for the victim and some sort of risk management for the perpetrator to, mat, to make sure things don't go from bad to worse. I know at our, our organization, we have the two shelters, Haven House and Salma House in Kitchener and Cambridge, and I know we have a risk assessment tool that our workers use, and um, it's definitely informed by these risk factors as well uh, in order to help safety plan with women. And I, I know from what I've heard anyways, it, it really is different depending on the situation. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about women who live in rural areas, so I know that then based on these risk factors that you've developed, then the risk assessment tool would change and their safety planning would change as well. So I know our outreach workers who work with rural women would be making a different safety plan than a woman who lives in an apartment building in Kitchener. It's different than a woman living on a farm in Elmira. Um, so 
for me, I can see how these would be used and put into practice, but it sounds like what you're saying is they're not being used widely enough by enough people, unfortunately. And we've seen that repeatedly in our in our research when we've gone back to cases and we've asked the question, you know, was there risk assessment done? Usually with the police, there was one done. Unfortunately, sometimes it's done, but then it sort of gets buried into the court file and it, it doesn't become used in a more active way in terms of the police partnering with community agencies uh, to look at the ongoing risk uh, for victims because a lot of things happen after the police or, or court involvement and there has to be some sort of ongoing monitoring, uh, certainly in, in the high risk cases that, that we're seeing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so what do you think is needed then? I'm curious, if, if not a, peop- a lot of people are using this information that they have available, what do you think needs to change? Like, how do we get people to pay more attention to this? Well, our two major recommendations in our death review reports uh, over the last two decades uh, have focused on, on uh, the area of public education. So making sure that friends, family, neighbors, co-workers are aware of what domestic violence is and what the warning signs may be for lethal violence. So there needs to be much broader public awareness because for victims, it's friends, family, co-workers, neighbors who uh, often have the most information but don't know what to do with it. So public education uh, is the key. Uh, And the second major area is really professional education, uh, professional training. So every sector um, needs to be aware of domestic violence and potential lethal domestic violence. So obviously it's more than just what the police need to do, more than what the police need to do. It's, uh, for example, it's family doctors you know, do family doctors, uh, are they aware of what the warning signs are? Um, Do they have a structured approach? You know, what happens uh, when they have cases in their their office? Uh, Sometimes they may be involved in being the physician, both for the victim and the perpetrator. Um, What's their role and responsibility? How do they make appropriate referrals? Uh, Another professional that we often don't think about are teachers, uh, because children living with domestic violence Uh, may show many signs and symptoms in the classroom, in their behavior, in their uh, problems with attendance or uh, trauma symptoms. And obviously teachers uh, need to be informed that living with domestic violence is a form of child abuse and they may need to intervene and work together with the Children's Aid Society uh, to look at the risks that children are facing. Uh, Also, the other, I think, major sector that, that isn't doing enough for mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. Uh, for example, they, they may be aware of clients they have who are depressed and suicidal, uh, but they often aren't looking at a history of domestic violence and potential homicidal uh, thinking or ideation. And to what extent uh, are they pursuing those issues, both with the victim, if the victim is their client, or the perpetrator? Uh, or in fact, the children who are showing signs and symptoms of living with domestic violence. So that's a, a, a major area is professional training, professional education across all sectors, healthcare, social service, education, uh, it's, it's critical. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot that can be done and needs to be done. 
And I'm glad we're talking about it today because I feel like having these conversations is, is the start. And the more any every person can understand a little tidbit more about domestic violence, they can pass it along to someone else they know. And hopefully we can keep that awareness growing. Something else I'm, I'm really curious about is if you could talk to, about a case that kind of stands out in your mind from all the ones you've reviewed over the years. I know there's probably only so many details you're able to share, um, but I'm curious if there's any that kind of stand out to you that you might be willing to talk about. Early in our work in the Death Review Committee, uh, we often had uh, victims or survivors who, who came forward to talk about uh, what they went through. And, and early on in our case review case reviews, we met with a mother whose uh, uh, children had been killed by her ex-partner. And what she described uh, was pretty incredible in the sense, in the sense of that she had uh, been assaulted. She talked about the fact that in the criminal justice system, she had a great response. She had a police officer who had specialized training in domestic violence. There was a Crown attorney who was a specialist in domestic violence, had lots of training. And she was actually in a domestic violence court where a judge was dealing with lots of domestic violence cases and understood the issues. She was referred to victim services. And she described receiving an excellent level of service that was well coordinated. So she said, you know, when she went to the criminal court, it was like having this wraparound service uh, where she could see a whole team working together. She said then she then went to the family court in the same courthouse and she met a judge in the family court who told her if she was going to have custody of the children, it was her responsibility to promote contact uh, with her ex-husband because he was still the father and kids need a mother and a father. And she told our committee, she said, you know, I went to the criminal court and I had a whole safety plan. I went to a different courtroom in the same courthouse and in the, then I was suddenly in a danger plan where the judge was telling me to promote contact with somebody I didn't think was safe for the children. Her, her children, unfortunately, were killed, uh, but her words never left me in the sense of, uh, in the sense of, that it was such a preventable crime. And she said, if the left hand knew what the right hand knew, you know, if one courtroom knew what the other courtroom knew, uh, they could have been working together, and the family court could have been working with the criminal court, or sharing information, rather than working in totally different silos and the family court not appreciating the risks that the, uh, that the criminal court was seeing. So that's, that's one case where um, it's, it sort of has, I mentioned it because first of all, it's a theme we see repeatedly about the lack of coordination uh, within the justice system between the family court and the criminal court, and also the lack of coordination then with those courts and community agencies in providing appropriate safety planning and risk management strategies. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And it's difficult to hear those stories, but I think it also speaks to how important this work is that you're doing because only by reviewing these things and really understanding that are, are you understanding the, the danger that's there and what can be done to prevent something like this in the future. I think that's really important. I mean, I'm driven by the voices of victims and survivors. Um, uh, I've been at this for so long. And I continue because I feel I have a duty 
to those who've lost lives or those who've lost family members uh, and have shared their stories. So those stories have to inform us and have to motivate us. And the analogy I often use uh, when I try to explain my work to uh, my, my children, I have four boys and uh, a couple of them are more interested in social work and psychology and these some of these issues. And uh, when they ask me about you know what I do when I go to the office of the chief coroner, I often draw the analogy of investigating plane crashes. I said, you know, when the plane goes down, um, you can't bring back those passengers, but you'll be damn sure that you're going to find out if there was pilot error or there was bad weather conditions or was something wrong with that aircraft because you want to protect the next passenger who gets on a plane uh, and wants to make sure they have the best educated pilots and the best uh, informed systems. And I say domestic violence is no different. When someone dies, we just don't forget and move on. When someone dies, we under we want to understand why, how it could have been prevented, because future victims are going to depend on having the best possible responses uh, to protect them and uh, and to prevent these tragedies. I think that's the perfect analogy. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it really really helps you understand why it is you're doing this work and and how it can help in the future. So. On that note, we're going to wrap up soon, but part of this project, the She Is Your Neighbor project, is about talking about how we can all be better neighbors, and especially to those experiencing domestic violence. So as we close here, I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts on how we can all be good neighbors. Well, being good neighbors means to be well-informed. There's there's lots of resources. I mean, you, you it's easy to get information about this issue. Um, Actually, on our center's website, we have a uh, a link to Neighbors, Friends, and Family, which is our our provincial campaign. And I know, obviously, Waterloo Region has its own campaign, but there's lots of information available uh, to become better informed on the on these issues. Uh, actually, that campaign also there's a sister campaign uh, for francophones. There's also a campaign. Uh, for diverse communities, uh, culturally diverse communities, and the materials available in uh, in over a dozen languages. There's also a parallel Indigenous campaign, so it's important to uh, to be informed. Uh, also important to be informed in the workplace. Domestic violence is now a wor- workplace health and safety issue, uh, so it's important to be informed about what your role and responsibilities are uh, in the in the workplace. So I think information uh, is critical. And beyond information, uh, I think uh, we need to have as many opportunities as possible to uh, to practice what we might say and do. People are hesitant to put their nose in somebody else's business, uh, but it's important to think about what you might do or say to support a victim or encourage a perpetrator to get help uh, without you know making things worse or without judging them. So those are things I think we need to think about and uh, so I think those are those are critical points of points of, it, of intervention so I think we need to stay informed and think about our responses because we could we could prevent many of the deaths that we're seeing in our communities thank you so much Peter I, I totally agree with you I think that's kind of the slogan of this campaign is that we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence and I really believe that and I I think learning from you today has been so wonderful so thank you for everything you that you do in general and especially for being here today 
My pleasure. Thanks for all your questions and best wishes on your continued work on your campaign. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.